The scripture this week is from the book of Job, chapter 42, verses 5 and 6, and also from the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 32, verses 36 to 41. Um, if you've got the blue pew Bibles, uh, that's on pages 446 and then page 661. So first from Job. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And from Jeremiah 32, starting at verse 36. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever, for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we come to this passage, um, we have been called into your presence by you, by your very word. Um, it, is, it is always you uh, who, who makes the first move. It is always you who pursues your people. Uh, it is you who have made us a people. It's you who have named us um, after yourself. Uh, it is you who have, have called us here and, uh, Lord, at every point in this worship service and, and throughout our lives, we are dependent on your promises and your grace toward us. Um, not least, certainly not least, when we approach your word. Um, we know that of ourselves, our hearts... Um, are deadened to the truth of, of your word, that, that our eyes are blind, um, that we can't see the, the beauty uh, and the richness uh, in, in your word. And so we ask, uh, Holy Spirit, that you would be present and that you would illuminate uh, the eyes of our hearts uh, and our minds to be able to see what it is that you would say to your people, uh, to be sensitive to, to the ways that you would be working in us. Um, Father, I want to continue to pray as we were just praying in adult ed, um, as, as we're exploring uh, this topic of, of biblical justice, and we're, we're praying um, in, in line with this question that we've been asking uh, for over a year now. What, what would it mean uh, to see with the eyes of biblical justice? And um, as we were reminded this morning, um, justice is not so much... Um, something that describes you, not just one of your attributes. It, it is bound up in your very character. It is who you are. And so when we ask what would it mean to see the world through the eyes of justice, it, it means what would it mean to see the world through your eyes? Um, where does your eye fall um, uh, on those who are weak uh, and needy 
uh, and oppressed uh, and in need of, of help? And what are the opportunities that you have given to us individually uh, and as a people? Um, Lord, before we can ask for the strength or the energy or the diligence to pursue those things, we, we need to ask for the eyes to see them. Father, we, we pray um, that you would give us hearts um, that beat in tune with yours. Um, hearts that would be uh, sensitive uh, to those around us. Um, uh, looking for opportunities to show honor uh, and dignity uh, to everyone uh, made in your image and, and particularly to those uh, who have been overlooked um, by the world. Um, it, it is a, it's an amazing thing. The scripture teaches that we are uh, made in, in your image uh, and that you have called us uh, into your service as, as stewards of so much. Uh, you have been uh, generous to us in, in more ways than just material um, because you have given your very self. Uh, you have given your son, um, his life uh, for ours. Father, we thank you um, that, that even as we come uh, to this passage uh, and try to gain deeper insight and, and to see more clearly your heart uh, for us and for the world, um, that again, we, we do this at your call. We do this because you have taken the initiative to reveal yourself to us. You have not left us alone. Um, you have not left us to figure out who you are uh, for ourselves. And so, Father, as always, I ask as we come to this passage uh, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, one of the highlights of my week, uh, every week, is, is Monday mornings. Um, on Mondays, Bradley and I get on the phone, usually for about an hour and a half. Um, we spend a lot of time praying. No surprise there if you've met Bradley. Um, we spend a lot of time praying for the church, for you, uh, for one another. We pray that God would be at work through what was done the previous day. Um, we spend time studying the passage that's coming up uh, for the, the following week. Um, we also talk about the sermon from the day before, um, and just, you know, how did it go? How did you think? Did you think you, you communicated well? One of the questions that Bradley will, will always ask uh, me, or always ask, or I'll ask him is, you know, was there anything you, you felt like you didn't get to say? Um, the answer to that is almost always yes. Preachers have a lot to say. Um, but usually it's things that, you know, we'll get back to that, not a big deal. Um, last week, um, as I preached on Job 42, um, the, first, the first six verses last week, when Bradley asked, you know, is there anything that you felt like you didn't, you didn't get to, in this case, the answer was, you know, actually, there was kind of a major point um, that I just didn't have time for. Uh, I, just, I just wasn't able to get to the, the, last, um, the last part of, of, of my sermon. Um, and as we talked about it, we both felt like... Uh, what I wasn't able to cover last week um, was important enough at the very beginning of our study of the fear of the Lord um, that it would be worth coming back to. It would be worth going back and, and, and covering this. Um, Job is a hard book. Um, no one's ever claimed that Job is an easy book to understand, but it's not just hard to understand. Um, it can be, be a book that it can lay a burden 
um, on you. Um, it can be a book that's discouraging to read. One of the reasons that we have begun this, this whole series by talking about what the fear of the Lord is um, from Job 1 and Job 42, and then we're going to go back you know, and cover the middle um, over the next several months, is because we want you to understand that as we look at this book of Job, as we look at this story of a man who is described as being righteous and upright and who feared God and who nevertheless suffered um, in ways that most of us will never suffer, um, we need to see not just what can we learn from Job. We need to see the heart of God. We need to see the heart of our father, of Job's father. Um, and so what I want to do is go back uh, to one of the points that, uh, that I wasn't able to get to last week, which the main, the main thing that I wasn't really able to, to uncover um, was what is the difference between um, the fear of the Lord and simply being afraid of God. Let me remind you of the, the definition that we have um, been, been using for what the fear of the Lord is. We've been saying that the fear of the Lord is an awe-filled orientation toward God in all aspects of life that leads to obedience. Last week I was able to touch on the fact that one of the key differences between an obedience which is free, right, an obedience that's consistent with living as people who are free, as we heard Peter say in our summer series, the difference between that and a coerced kind of obedience that would be consistent with being afraid of God um, is that the former the free obedience that comes from the fear of the Lord is the fruit of repentance. Um, it's the fruit of turning back uh, to God. Um, and this is, this is what I want to talk about today. And in order, in order to really see that, this is why our main text today, we looked at verses 5 and 6 again from Job 42. But if you remember last week, I mentioned that in prayer, we had been reading this passage out of Jeremiah. And I said, this is really, this has impacted the way I'm going to preach, but then I never actually got to Jeremiah. That was part of what I didn't get to. Um, this text, Jeremiah 32, 36 to 41, that talks about the fear of the Lord, um, this is where we are going to see the heart of the Father. And this is what I want us to see before we proceed with this, um, with this, with this series. So, so let's ask this question. Okay, so what's the difference between the fear of the Lord um, and simply being, simply being afraid? Um, are they, in the end, just the same thing? So the answer to that is yes and no. Um, there is a sense in which the fear of the Lord and being afraid um, of, of anything um, do have some, some similarities. But what I want us to see is the qualitative difference between them. Here's, here's the similarity. Um, everybody fears something. Um, because everybody worships something. Everybody puts something on the pinnacle of their life and says, if I have that 
then my life means something. Then I'll be satisfied. Um, then I'm significant. Um, whereas if I don't have it, if I lose it, then my life has no meaning. There's no reason to go on. Um, this is something that we hear from uh, not only scripture, um, not only our liturgy, Dan said it, we're here to do what we were made to do, right? Everybody is made for worship. This is what it means to be human. We are made to worship. Um, everybody worships something. Augustine says, you have made us for yourselves. He's praying to God. You've made us for yourselves, and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. Um, and I think I've already quoted probably too many times David Foster Wallace, right? That, that speech that he, that commencement address that he gave at Kenyon College where he details how everybody worships something. He says, you, you know, your choice isn't whether to worship or not. It's only what do you worship? Um, there's a great example of this uh, in an essay by a guy named Paul Graham. Um, so Paul Graham is a guy who He's best known for founding a company called Y Combinator, which is this tech accelerator. So a, a tech accelerator is not a venture capital firm. It, it puts budding entrepreneurs in contact with venture capital firms, and then it provides coaching and mentoring and a little bit of seed money. So Paul Graham's company, Y Combinator, has uh, helped companies like Reddit, um, Dropbox, uh, Netflix, like companies you've heard of. Um, but he's also an essayist. And he wrote this one essay called Cities and Ambition, um, in which he made a very simple point. He said, when you're fresh out of college and you're deciding where to live, be very careful where you decide to live. Because every city is going to tell you something a little bit different about what really matters in life. Um, he's got this great example. He, he, he says, you know, so Y Combinator has offices in Cambridge and Berkeley. And he said, before I went out to Berkeley in the Bay Area, I always thought that Berkeley would basically be Cambridge with better weather. But then it turns out that Cambridge with better weather isn't Cambridge anymore. Because the people who live in Cambridge, they are there because they want to be around the smartest people in the world. And they're willing to put up with the terrible weather uh, in order to be with those people. Whereas in Berkeley, I discovered... Of course, those people are very smart, but they're after some, something like, you know, the good life. And, and it's the Bay Area, so they got it. Is um, it, you know, if you move to New York, you're going to hear that money matters more than anything. If you move to D.C., power matters more than anything. In L.A., fame matters more than anything. It, it ticks off a bunch of other cities. His point, you know, he's giving career advice. Be careful where you move. But I think he's saying something really, really insightful, which is every city has its God. Every city has a very, very loud voice telling you, this is what we worship here. This is what really matters. This is what will give you significance. Um, and we all know the power of that voice. We all know how powerful those are in speaking to us, um, in how alluring um, that they are. Like David Foster Wallace said, the choice is not whether we worship something. Um, the choice is only what do we worship. The choice is not whether we fear something. So you could, you know, if you go back to our definition, you could say everybody has an awe-filled orientation towards something. 
that filters into all aspects of our lives and generates obedience. It affects our behavior, right? Um, the question is not whether that's true of us, it's what do we put in that, in that blank? Throughout Scripture, what marks out the people of God is very simple, that they call on the name of the Lord in times of trouble. So this, this starts as far back as like Genesis 4, okay? Genesis 4 um, follows, so after Cain kills Abel, we get these stories about Cain and his descendants, right? And they do all these amazing things. They develop all these technologies, art and music, and they build cities, right? They're very, very impressive people. But the genealogy only goes seven generations until it burns up, you know, in this last uh, spasm of violence. Um, and, that's all, and that's all we hear of them. And, and scholars have asked, okay, so does that mean is the Bible against technology? Is it against cities? But that doesn't seem to be the point. Because running parallel to the line of Cain is another line. Um, Cain and Abel weren't Adam and Eve's only children, which is a good thing for the story to continue. Um, he graciously gave another son, Seth. And the line of Seth... Um, we get a, a parallel genealogy. It doesn't tell us anything that they did. It doesn't say they developed any technologies or art, built any cities. It doesn't say any of that. All it says is they called on the name of the Lord. The difference between the line of Seth and the line of Cain, the difference between the people of God and the rest of humanity is simply what do we call on? As Psalm 24 puts it, what do we lift up our soul to, right? Who can ascend the hill of the Lord and enter into his holy place, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart and does not lift up his soul uh, to what is false? Every one of us lifts up our soul to something. Um, when Bradley started this uh, series, our, our first text, it was Job 1, but also Psalm 147. And remember, the verses he read were these, um, Psalm 147, 10 and 11. His delight is not in the strength of the horse. This is God. God's delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. So in a sense, there is this similarity between fearing the Lord and fearing anything else, uh, being afraid. Um, being in awe of anything else. But what I really want us to see is how qualitatively different the two are, how qualitatively different it is to fear the Lord, to call on the name of the Lord, to lift up our soul to the Lord, um, to worship him versus anything else. And, and it's ultimately a matter of the heart, and not just one heart. It is ultimately a matter of our hearts, but also, and I think more importantly, it is a matter of God's heart for us. Um, this is what I want us to see in, in, this, in this passage. So first of all, um, it, is a, it, is, it is a matter of our hearts. If you look at the passage in Jeremiah 32, um, God, and this is... The context of this is right after God promising the new covenant, right? 
I will write my law on their hearts. Um, God says, I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever, for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may, may not turn from me. Um, what this is saying is that God hasn't simply told us in our fallen condition, turned away from him, that we ought to fear him. God has actually come in and done heart surgery. God has actually given us hearts that are capable of fearing him. He has changed the capacity um, of, of our hearts. He's given us one heart and one way. He's, he puts the fear of him in our hearts um, in order that we don't uh, turn, turn from him. One of the qualitative differences between fearing God um, and being afraid of any other creature um, is that it, it, it doesn't take a different kind of heart to be afraid of a creature. We're all perfectly capable of that uh, on our own. Um, we have the capacity uh, to fear creatures, uh, to, to, to worship and to adulate money uh, or, or education or relationships or whatever it is. Um, Tim Keller has talked about how um, if you want to get obedience, right, if you want to impact your behavior, it is possible to get changed behavior, it's possible to get obedience, it's possible to get the, exactly the kind of behavior that you want without your heart changing at all. He talks about this as being, this is, this is the jerry-rigged heart, right? We can, without our hearts being transformed, without them being changed. Um, we can take sinful and fallen structures in our hearts and, and use them, game them, so to speak, uh, in order to get the kind of behavior that we want. Um, if you're a manager of people, or if you're a parent, uh, or both of those things, you know how this works. Like You know how to get the kind of behavior that you want um, using fallen structures, right? So, so for instance, um, we sometimes, like if you, if you want your children not to lie, you know, you can, you can say to them, you know, if you tell me lies, there will be consequences, right? Um, which is, you could use fear. You, you can tell your children, you don't want to be one of those liars, okay? That's not who we are, right? Which is using pride. Neither of those things requires any change in, in the heart. Now, there is a time and place in, in parenting. I'll, this would be a longer sermon. Uh, there's a time and place in, in parenting um, for, for, uh, for discipline, right? For parents to apply, to apply consequences. Um, but that's not ultimately what we want for our kids. We don't ultimately want them to tell the truth simply out of fear of consequences or simply because... We want them to be proud of, of not being one of those lying people. Um, what we long for them is a changed heart. What we long for ourselves 
is for our hearts to be transformed, um, for our, the capacity of our hearts to be enlarged um, and enlivened, for God to give us hearts capable of fearing him, of holding him in awe um, in a way that motivates obedience through repentance. There's this really interesting um, verse in, in Ephesians 4 where Paul is talking about uh, the Gentiles um, and, and is, is, you know, talking about, about their behavior. He says, um, this is Ephesians 4.19, he says, they've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And what's interesting about that verse is, is the fact that the words callous and sensuality appear in the same sentence because normally when we think of, of, of sensuality, we think of an excess of desire, an excess of feeling, right? But that's the opposite of what a callus is. You know, if you learn to play the guitar, you get calluses on your fingers where you can't feel anymore. Um, what Paul is saying here um, is that chasing after anything other than God actually deadens our hearts actually deadens our capacity to love. Um, we end up less and less satisfied, less and less feeling. Um, a changed heart, where God has worked transformation, um, is a heart capable of more feeling, more sensitivity, more love. Um, the capacity to fear a God who's not just a very large creature, um, threatening very large consequences, but the transcendent God of the universe uh, who, who made us. Here's the difference, and, and here again, I'm just going to quote Keller because he has put this succinctly as well as I think it can be put. The difference between being afraid of a creature and fearing the Lord is that when we fear creatures, when we worship these, these other gods, the only way that obedience comes about is through the dynamic of us saying, if I behave in the right way, then I'll get what I really want, what I really need, what will really satisfy me, right? So if I obey, then my life will be acceptable. The gospel goes the exact opposite direction. It says you're accepted. You are loved. You are adopted. And therefore, you can obey. Therefore, your behavior can change. So not, if I obey, then I'll be accepted, but rather, I'm accepted, therefore, therefore I obey. And this, to really understand this, this is where we have to see the heart of God for his people. Look at verse 41 in Jeremiah 32. This was the verse that as we, as we prayed through this, and I, Bradley and I, we did this with several different groups, you know, prayer on Wednesday morning, and, and then with the staff, and actually with the elders the night before at our session meeting, the, the, the verse that was just jumping out at us, verse 41, God saying, after saying, I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me, it says, I will rejoice in doing them good. I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. Um, that's almost too much to comprehend. What does it mean for God, the infinite creator of the universe? Unlimited power. 
in a way that we can't even understand. What does it mean for him to do something with all his heart and with all his soul, to put all of himself into something, almost as though he's expending effort? Um, but this is what... This is what scripture time and time again says is true of our God. That he delights over doing us good. He rejoices over doing us good. Maybe the verse that we've heard more than any other. I know it shows up in our liturgy all the time. Um, Isaiah 30, 15, right? It says... Thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and trust shall be your strength. Um, again, like Dan said during the liturgy today, um, repentance is about returning. So another way to read this verse is, in repentance and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and trust shall be your strength. Um, have you ever read on from there in Isaiah 30? It goes on, it says, but you were unwilling. And you said, no, we will flee upon horses. Therefore you shall flee away, and we will ride upon swift steeds. Therefore your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one. And at the threat of five you shall flee till you are left, like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Okay, now stop reading if, you're, if you happen to flip to it. Okay, the next word after that is therefore. And ask yourself, what's coming next? Okay, in quietness and trust are your salvation, but you were unwilling, you said no, etc., etc. Therefore what? Therefore the hammer is coming down. Therefore you had your chance and you blew it. Listen to what it says. Listen to the heart of your father. It says, therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. We talked this afternoon in adult ed about how God's justice and mercy are never opposed, but always perfectly aligned. But do you hear what's going on here? He's offering us this salvation that lies in repentance and in rest. And we won't have it. We say no. We run away. And therefore, he offers more of salvation in repentance and rest. And he waits to be gracious. And he exalts himself. It's actually exalting to him. It lifts him up. Again, that's almost incomprehensible. What do you mean we're lifting up the God who is already lifted up as high as he could be? But he says he exalts himself to show mercy to us. It's in seeing that that our hearts are moved to repent. It's in seeing that um, that we turn back. Psalm 130 says, with you there is forgiveness, therefore you may be feared. It's his forgiveness. It's his mercy. It's his long-suffering, abounding, steadfast love for us that moves us towards repentance and that moves us to fear him, not to be afraid of him, 
It's that that works in our hearts and gives us that capacity to orient ourselves to him with awe in a way that leads us into repentance and therefore into an obedience that's free, not coerced, not just fear of consequences, but an obedience that's characteristic of free sons and daughters adopted uh, into his family. I mentioned last week that when Job says that he repents, he uses a word um, that means comfort. Um, when he says, I, therefore I repent, there's a, there's a footnote in a lot of your Bibles um, that says, you could translate this, I am comforted in dust and ashes. There's actually a comfort um, that comes with repentance as, as, it's, as it's a letting go, as it's a relenting. Um, a letting go of the need to make a world for ourselves and a taking hold of this returning and rest and quietness and trust where we find our, our salvation. Um, in his little book, uh, The Sickness Unto Death, um, Soren Kierkegaard gets at this in a way um, I think is very very powerful. Um, he talks about a person who's in um, a person who's in despair, and, and when he's talking about a person who's in despair, he means a person who is unable to repent, um, a person who thinks he's too far gone. Um, he can't possibly repent uh, enough and be free of his guilt. Um, and here's what he says. Listen to this metaphor um, that he uses. He says, figuratively speaking. It's as if an error slipped into an author's writing and the error became conscious of itself as an error. And now this error wants to mutiny against the author out of hatred toward him, forbidding him to correct it, and in maniacal defense, excuse me, in maniacal defiance, saying to him, No, I refuse to be erased. I will stand as a witness against you, a witness that you're a second rate author. Um, I think part of the challenge of reading this book, uh, this, this book of Job, um, is that for anyone who can identify with Job, who can, for anyone who can identify with these sufferings, to be able to repent and to let go, um, rather than to hang on to the bitterness and the grief in order to put God in the dock, to put him on the defense, in order to hold it up as a witness against him uh, as, as a second-rate God. Um, that's the most powerful temptation um, for those who would come uh, to the book of Job. But what we see in this book and what we see in the gospel uh, is a God whose heart is always to wait. So even if you can imagine yourself, if you can identify with that Kierkegaard quote, um, the relentless clinging to the bitterness in order um, to bear witness against God, know that even then, if that's you, even then God waits. Even then, 
God's heart for his children is just like the heart of that father in the parable Jesus told. The heart of the father who stands scanning the horizon, waiting for his son to return, to come back, to clothe him, to celebrate with him. This table that we go to now is a foretaste of the feast that's waiting, that God has prepared for us, um, that he has had long, long patience with every one of us to make a place uh, at, this, at this table. So before we come, let's pray together and give thanks.